Well, please stand for the reading of God's word and open your Bibles to Psalm 111, 111. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart, in the company of the upright and in the assembly. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Splendid and majestic is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonders to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has given food to those who fear him. He will remember his covenant forever. He has made known to us, he has made known to his people, the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his precepts are sure. They are upheld forever and ever. They are performed in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Pray with me this morning. Our Father, we praise you, and we give thanks to you with all of our hearts, and we do this in the company of the upright and in the assembly of your gathered people, and we confess as a body that great are your works, and that we delight to study them and to meditate upon them and to think deeply upon them. Splendid and majestic is your work. You are the one who is able to do things that no other being can do. We praise you for your righteousness, that you are eternally righteous, that the wonders that you have done in the world are to be remembered by your people. We thank you for being the creator, for making the whole universe in six days by the breath of your mouth. We thank you for all of your redemptive history up until this very moment in time. We thank you for the heritage, the legacy of your grace and your compassion. We thank you for being the provider of the food that we eat and the water that we drink and the air that we breathe. We thank you for being faithful to your covenant forever. Father, we thank you that you are also a God of justice and that in your justice, Christ has borne our sins. And this is the tremendous expression of your justice and grace at the same time, where you have taken our sins away from us and laid them upon your Son, And where he suffered, bled, and died in our place. And where justice was satisfied and where justice met with your mercy on the cross. 
We thank you, as the psalmist says, that you have sent redemption to your people. Our redemption is in Christ. Holy and awesome is your name, O God. Lord, we want to grow in our fear of you. We want to recognize even more deeply than we do now that you are holy, that you are awesome, that you are a God who is majestic and full of splendor. We thank you for the testimony of the psalm that a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. If we obey you, this is the expression This is the evidence that we have a good understanding of your character, of your law, and your ways. O Father, your praise endures forever. You are eternally praiseworthy. We thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to gather with your people to have your word before us. And we pray that your spirit would once again open your word to our minds. And apply it deeply to our hearts. May this not just be an academic exercise of learning more information. But may you take your truth and may you apply it with the skill of a surgeon to the areas of our life where your truth needs to be applied. Where there needs to be conviction, may you bring that about. Where there needs to be encouragement and growth, and transformation. May you please do that within us. We love you. We thank you that we love you because you first loved us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is with great joy that I invite you to take your Bibles once again and open to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. And we'll be looking at verse 4, but I want to read verses 1 through 4 to have once again the setting and the context of our verse. The title of this message is God's Word to Fathers, part 1. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Let me read them in your hearing. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One of the greatest books that I have ever read is called, and it's a long title, Missionary Patriarch, The True Story of John G. Patton, Evangelist for Jesus Christ Among the South Sea Cannibals. In the publisher's introduction to the book, it says, and I quote, this is the greatest missionary story ever written, end quote. John Patton was born in 1824 in Scotland. 
And at the age of 33, he was ordained to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the New Hebrides, an island chain in the South Pacific Ocean that was inhabited by violent, savage cannibals. In one of the many powerful scenes from the book, and I reiterate that there are many powerful and profound scenes in the book, but one of them involves John Patton's relationship with his father. Writing many years after the event, John Patton describes the day that he departed from his father to do his missionary work in the New Hebrides. And I want to quote a portion of what he writes. Quote, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if it had been but yesterday. And tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to the scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. His tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place. He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and when about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me, I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then, rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking for me. He did not see me, and after he had gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, In his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and oft by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers, and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and then walking away, head uncovered, have often, often, all through life, risen vividly before my mind. And do so now while I am writing, as if it had been but an hour ago. 
In my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is no Phariseeism, but deep gratitude, which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped by God's grace to keep me pure from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might faithfully follow his shining example. End quote. That is one of the most beautiful things outside of the Bible that I have ever read in my whole life. John Patton had the kind of father, beloved, who all through his life was a means of grace to him to keep him pure from sin, to stimulate in his study and work, and to inspire in him faithfulness in all of his Christian duties. And so here is my prayer this morning. Oh God, raise up fathers like John Patton's father. God, help the fathers of this church, including this very weak father, to be the kind of fathers whose godly influence and godly example will be a means of grace to their children throughout the entirety of their lives. That's what I pray for me, and that's what I pray for the fathers and even the grandfathers of this congregation. This brings us to Ephesians chapter 6 where the Apostle Paul addresses the wonderful theme of Christian fatherhood. As we have said many times now, we are in that section of the book in which Paul is discussing the spirit-filled life. He began that in chapter 5 and verse 18, and part of the spirit-filled life involves submission to authority. And we find ourselves in the providence of God at this point in the second example of relationships in the church that involve submission to authority, namely children and parents in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Paul's pattern in this passage is to first address those who are under authority, and then he follows that by addressing those who are in authority. And to both he gives respective responsibilities. Now in the last two weeks we have seen in verses 1 through 3 that Paul directly addressed the children of the church. And he specifically instructed them to obey their parents and to honor their parents. This is a picture of what spirit-filled children look like. And now in verse 4, Paul directly addresses the fathers of the church, and he gives to them very specific instructions, and once again he is painting the picture of the spirit-filled life, namely what a spirit-filled father looks like. Now before we dive into the text, I want to make a few introductory comments about our verse. There are three of them that I want to make. Number one, Paul's instructions to fathers is surprising. It is surprising what he says in verse 4. 
And what I mean by this is that Paul does not explicitly instruct the fathers to exercise their authority over their children as we might expect. He doesn't say, fathers, rule your children. He doesn't say anything like that. And he doesn't say that for at least two reasons. Number one, the authority of fathers over their children is already assumed in verses 1 through 3 by virtue of how he instructs the children to obey their fathers and to honor their fathers. Secondly, he doesn't instruct the fathers to exercise their authority because Paul's greatest concern at this point is how fathers exercise their authority. And therefore, he instructs them, listen carefully, in the wise use of their God-given authority. John Stott says it well when he says this, quote, It is not the exercise but the restraint of their authority which he urges upon them. It's the restraint of their authority. It is the wise use of their authority that is upon the heart of Paul as he writes this letter. This is the same pattern that Paul followed with husbands and wives, you will remember, from chapter 5. And so Paul, while he recognizes that there is a place of authority in certain relationships in the church, he is at the same time greatly concerned about the abuse of authority, whether it is the authority of a husband to his wife or fathers to their children. A second introductory comment is that Paul's instructions to fathers is concise. It is very concise. Paul's instructions to fathers is considerably shorter than his instructions to the wives in chapter 5. It is considerably shorter than his instructions to the husbands in chapter 5. And it is even considerably shorter than his instructions to the children. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, his instructions to the fathers is only one verse. That is very brief, that is very short, that is extremely concise. Especially when you compare this to all of the books, all of the material that has been and is still being written on the theme of parenting. Can you imagine a book being published that's less than a page long? That's just one verse. That would be an extremely short book. And that is because the writers of books are very different than the primary author of this book, namely the Holy Spirit, God. Beloved, God has the ability to communicate a volume, a lifetime of truth in a very brief economy of words. So through the pen of Paul, the Lord gives us a parenting manual in just one verse. Just one verse. This one verse is made up of only 16 Greek words. That's an amazing economy of words. The third preliminary idea about our text is Paul's instructions to fathers. Listen, it is revolutionary. It is revolutionary. Harold Honer, one of the premier commentators on the book of Ephesians, says this, quote, in giving the instructions, Paul brings to fathers a new perspective, a new perspective on the treatment of their children. 
In other words, in the context of the world in which the Ephesians lived, Paul's instructions were nothing short of revolutionary because they lived under, listen, the Roman law. That was their setting. That was their culture. That was their world. And Roman law was anything but friendly to children, especially when it came to their relationship to their fathers. Under Roman law, there was something called patria potestis. That's Latin for father's power. This was integral to, to the Roman law related to fathers and their sons. And I want to quote you William Barclay, who speaks of this very law. Quote, a Roman father had absolute power over his family. He could sell them as slaves. He could make them work in his fields, even in chains. He could take the law into his own hands, for law was in his own hands. And he could punish as he liked. He could even inflict the death penalty on his child. Further, the power of the Roman father extended over the child's whole life. So long as the father lived, a Roman son never came of age, end quote. To give you further idea of the Roman law's concept of a son or child's relationship to his father, listen to James Boyce. Quote, when a baby was born, it was placed before its father. If the father stooped and lifted the child, the child was accepted and was raised as his. If he turned away, the child was rejected and was literally discarded. Such rejected children were either left to die or they were picked up by those who trafficked in infants. These people raised children to be slaves or to stock the brothels. One Roman father wrote to his wife from Alexandria, quote, If you have a child, if it is a boy, let it live if it is a girl, throw it out, End quote. That gives you a little taste of what life was like under Roman law in terms of the place of children in society, in particular their homes. And so listen, beloved. It was very culturally accepted in Paul's day that children had responsibilities to their parents, especially their father's. But it was revolutionary to say that fathers had responsibilities to their children. As Paul outlines in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. Now in this one verse manual on parenting, we have three chapters, if you will. They're printed for you on the notes portion of the bulletin. Roman numeral 1.1, the address to fathers. Point number two, the warning to fathers. And then point number three, the responsibility of fathers. We're only going to have time to cover the first two. Lord willing, we'll cover the third one next Lord's Day. So let's begin with point number one on this manual, this one-verse manual on parenting. Roman number one, the address to fathers. In verse four, this is found in the very first word in the English text, namely fathers. Now, this is the fourth time in this passage that Paul has used what is called the vocative case in Greek. That is the case of direct address. 
In other words, at this, at this point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he is singling out, if you will, groups of people within the church and giving them specific instructions. He began with the wives, he followed that with the husbands, followed that with the children, and now he follows that with the fathers. And please note that very specifically, Paul is in fact addressing the fathers of the church. The Greek word that he uses is pater, from which we get English words like paternal or paternity. Now, to be fair, some commentators believe that Paul is using this word pater to address both fathers and mothers, and that is because we have an example of that in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11 and verse 23, the author of Hebrews uses pater to refer to both parents of Moses, mother and father. But if you consider the context of Ephesians 6.4, it seems very clear, at least in my mind, that Paul has only fathers in mind rather than both parents, fathers, and mothers. Look at the context. In verse 4, he refers to parents. Children, obey your parents. That's a different Greek verb than pater, which he uses in verse 4. And then in verse 2, he refers to father, pater, and mother, mater. So with a variety of words at his disposal, Paul chooses this one word in verse 4, pater, father. If he were addressing both of the parents, he very easily could have made that plain by using the word parents as he did in verse 1 or in verse 2. But instead, he just says fathers. He is limiting it to this one part of the parental relationship. Now we have to ask the question, why would Paul only address fathers? I mean, the children are to obey both mother and father. They are to honor both mother and father. So why then, after saying that in verses 1 through 3, would Paul then limit his instructions to the fathers and not the mothers? Well, there are at least two reasons. Number one, because fathers are the head of the home. They are the head of the home. They are the leaders of the family. While it is true that the children are responsible to obey both of their parents, they are to honor both mother and father, it is also true that ultimately this responsibility to lead the children to be the leader of the home falls upon the shoulders of the fathers. The buck stops with dad. It ends with dad, if you will. Now, this is interesting because in most cases, in most families, it is going to be the mother who will spend the majority of the time with the children due to the father's work, but her care for and her training of the children is to be done under the leadership and direction of the father. And just by way of a little footnote, turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. I want to show you a verse, and this is not exactly the same kind of context, but it's helpful. 1 Timothy 3, Paul here is dealing with the qualifications for an overseer or an elder or a pastor in a local congregation. And I want you to notice the language that he uses about one who would be qualified to hold this office in the church. And again, he is talking about men, only men are to be overseers, elders, pastors of the church. And notice what he says in 1 Timothy 3 verse 4, he must be one who manages his own household well. So what does the man, what does the father do with his home? 
What is his responsibility in the home? He must manage his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. And while it is true, according to Titus 2.5, that the mothers are to be workers at home, she, she is to do so under the benevolent management of the father who is the shepherd of the family by God's design. So that's the first reason why I believe Paul is addressing only fathers because they are the leaders of the home, the head of the home, the shepherds of their family. The second reason that Paul addresses fathers only is because, generally speaking, they are in greater need of what Paul has to say in verse 4. They are in greater need of what Paul has to say in verse 4. As fathers, it is our tendency to abuse our authority, isn't it? It is our tendency to abuse our authority, which is why Paul begins his instructions to them in the negative. And this brings us to point number two, the warning to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. That's negative. He begins with a negative. With a prohibition. From a grammatical point of view, the verb provoke to anger is a present tense command which denotes an ongoing lifestyle, a habitual way of living, and it is preceded by a negative particle, not. Not. Thus, what we have here is a strong prohibition to fathers. A strong prohibition. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. And you could take the word not and put it in all caps. That is the sense of what Paul is writing. So this is something that fathers do not have the right to do with their children. They have the right of authority over their children Children are to obey them, children are to honor them, but fathers do not have the right to provoke their children to anger. And if they provoke them to anger, listen, it is sin and it is an abuse of their parental authority. So again, Paul's great concern at this point is that fathers exercise their authority over their children with restraint and with wisdom. Unfortunately, we are all too familiar with fathers who are abusive, who are harsh, who are heavy-handed, who are stern, who are severe, who are oppressive. Maybe you had a father like that. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he had a father like that, and it greatly affected him. Curtis Vaughn writes this about Martin Luther. It is said that Martin Luther's father was so stern that Luther found it difficult to pray our father. To him, the word father had a connotation of forbidding severity. Wow. It was hard for Luther to think of God in terms of father because his earthly father was so harsh, 
so oppressive, so severe. In great contrast, again quoting Curtis Vaughn, he says this about the wise parent. He says, quote, It is a wise parent who seeks to make obedience easy for his children. And I like that. In contrast to the severity, harshness, heavy-handedness, it is a wise parent who seeks to make obedience easy for his children. Now let me give one point of clarification in terms of Paul's prohibition. When Paul warns fathers not to provoke their children to anger, listen carefully, he is not saying they must never do anything that makes their children angry. He's not saying this, okay, fathers, when you tell your children to make their bed, if they get angry about it, then stop telling them to make their bed. Children would love that to be the right interpretation of Ephesians 6.4, but it's not. He's not saying when you tell your children you cannot have ice cream until you eat your broccoli, and if they get angry about it, well, then don't ever tell them that again. That's not what he is saying at all. There are many times throughout the course of raising children that children will become angry when the father does what is right. And that's not the father's fault by any means. So instead, Paul warns fathers not to use their parental authority in such a way that it causes unnecessary anger in their children due to him being heavy-handed, Unfair, abusive, harsh, severe, etc., etc. Now, with the rest of our time this morning, I want to share with you some ways that fathers are prone to provoke their children to anger. These are not original with me. I have collected them from a variety of books and commentaries and so forth, and they are in no particular order, and some of them are going to overlap, as you will see. But before we proceed, fathers, let me just give you this little word of warning. Prepare to be convicted here, as I have been convicted all week (laughs) in preparation for this message. And, And that is a good thing, because being a father can be like walking in a minefield. It is easy to misstep in a number of places and to step on a landmine, if you will. And so I have 21 examples of how to sinfully provoke your children to anger. And by the way, I would add this statement. Even though Ephesians 6.4 is specifically addressed to fathers, the things that Paul has to say here is applicable to both fathers and mothers. So let's go through the 21 examples, and I don't mean to scare you by how many there are, but we're going to go through these pretty briefly. Number one, the first way that you can provoke your child to anger is by showing favoritism. Showing favoritism. As a parent, you might have a child that is easier to deal with than some of the others. You might have a child that you have more common interest with than others. But if this is the case, you must be so very careful not to show favoritism to that child over against the other children. Because if you do so, you will provoke the children to anger. Let me mention two names to you, very familiar names in the Bible, especially under this point, Jacob and Esau. 
Do you remember what their family was like? Do you remember what their home was like? Do you remember the pain, the sorrow of their family? Jacob was favored by his father Isaac, and his brother Esau was favored by his mother Rebekah, and their home was a disaster. It is in the Bible for the whole world to read. And when Jacob grew up and had his own sons, do you remember what he did? He repeated the same parental mistakes of his own parents, and he favored Joseph over his other sons, which made them so angry that what did they do with the favored son? They sold him as a slave. Now listen, those boys were very angry with Joseph, but not nearly as angry as they were with their father, who favored the one over the rest. And so showing favoritism will provoke children to anger. Number two, comparing your child to other children, especially in front of them. Why can't you be like your sister? Why can't you be like your brother? Why can't you be like the boy down the street or the other family in the church? Look at their sons. Look at their daughters. Why can't you be like them? Why can't you make the same kind of grades as so-and-so? Why can't you play baseball as well as so-and-so? When you speak like this to your child, I promise you it will provoke them to anger. Number three. Pushing achievement beyond reasonable bounds. It is good for parents to encourage their children to achieve certain things, but it can easily become unhealthy, especially when parents attempt to live out their unfulfilled fantasies through their children. For example, a father may want his son to be this professional athlete and basically pressure him to perform in such a way that it is too heavy to bear. It can produce anger in children. And so parents need to let children be themselves. They are individuals with their own personalities, with their own interests. You might love baseball, and you might have a son who does not love baseball. And if he doesn't love baseball, it would be prudent not to force that upon the child. Let them have their own interests. Let them live out their own personalities, if you will. They don't have to be just like you. You can encourage them in a certain direction, but if they're not interested in that, be careful not to pressure them with undue pressure. Well, number four, another way to provoke your children to anger is failing to give verbal encouragement. This is a very important one. If you want to provoke your children to anger, I can tell you very easily how to do it. Never encourage them. Never compliment them. Never praise them. Only tell them that what they are doing is wrong. Only point out their failures. And you will provoke them to anger. One thing that I have noticed about children is that they crave the approval and the praise of their parents. I can sit here in my mind's eye and reflect on all of the many times that my children doing some kind of activity, riding a bike, painting a picture, they want me to see it and they want me to praise them for it. They crave that. 
But if you withhold verbal encouragement, you will provoke them to anger. One of the worst things a parent can do is to make a child feel that you are never happy with them, that nothing they ever do is good enough, that they can never please you, that they they can never make you smile. So parents, encourage your children every opportunity that you get. Number five, a fifth way to provoke children to anger is to make them feel unwanted. When your child comes to you, if you want to make that child provoke to anger, just say to the child, go away. I'm busy. I'm reading the paper. I'm watching the news. I'm doing such and such. When you're not accessible to them, when you make them feel that every time they talk to you, it is an intrusion that will provoke them to anger. Now, I'm like you. There are many times when I come home, there are things on my mind. I'm distracted. I have responsibilities to do. And the kids run up and they want to immediately show me that they're working on something. Those are very important times to take advantage of and to share with them and to make them feel loved and to make them feel wanted. Well, number six, another way to provoke your children to anger is by verbally abusing them. Verbally abusing them. If you use words that put your children down, if you are sarcastic with them in a mean-spirited way, if you call them names, if you say things like, you're stupid, you're an idiot, can't you do anything right, you're such a baby, can't you get over it, you'll never amount to anything, listen, this will provoke them to anger. If you yell at your children, if you scream at your children, it will provoke them to anger. I I was convicted by reading one book on parenting that said, you should never yell at your children unless they are in physical danger. If they're about to be hit by a car, it is good to yell. But at no other time, yell or scream at your children. Well, number seven, physically abusing them. This is a rather obvious one, but it needs to be mentioned. If you even use excessive force in spanking, you will provoke them to anger. Number eight, making light of their problems. Your children's problems might seem small. They might seem trivial to you, but guess what? They're not small and trivial to them. And so when they come to you with their problems and you just basically cast them aside as being unimportant, then this will provoke them to anger. Here's a ninth one, lacking marital harmony. When mom and dad fight, when they argue, especially in front of the children, it has a deep effect upon them. It will provoke them to anger. Number 10, making promises and not keeping them. Let me give you an example. You might tell your child that, listen, on Friday afternoon, we're going to go out for ice cream. We're going to have a wonderful time together. But Friday comes along, and instead you go golfing. Or you just do something else. You say one thing, you do another. You don't keep your promises to them. That will provoke them to anger. Number 11, modeling sinful anger. 
When you exhibit sinful anger, this will produce sinful anger in your children because anger begets anger. Included in this would be impatience, losing your cool with your children, exhibiting sinful anger. Number 12, disciplining your children in anger. That is a tough one. Disciplining your children in anger. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love what he says. I need to hear it a thousand times. What right have you to say to your child that he needs discipline when you obviously need it yourself? Listen to me, child. You need to be... Who's the one out of control? It's dad. So control your anger when you discipline your children. Even Listen, I advocate timeouts for the parents. <laughs> Before you spank the child, go to the other room, take a deep breath, pray, ask for help, so that you will not discipline the child with sinful anger. Number 13, having double standards. This will provoke children to anger. This is when parents don't practice what they preach, in a word, when they're hypocrites. The greatest hypocrite detectors in the world are children, right? You live a kind of life here in the public arena of church. You go home, don't read your Bible, don't pray, don't do any of the spiritual disciplines that we talk about and love here in the public gathering. That is hypocrisy that is a double standard. That is parents saying, do as I say, not as I do. That will provoke them to anger. Number 14, inconsistent discipline. Inconsistent discipline on the part of the parents to the child. This is when parents enforce the death penalty for something one day. And then on the next day, when the same thing is committed, they ignore it. And what does that do to the child? They're confused. What? What do I expect? I don't understand what the parameters or the standards are. One day I get the death penalty. The next day it's ignored. It's a confused, mixed message. This might also take the form, listen, of showing consistent leniency towards one child as opposed to another. Two children commit the same sin. You spank the one. You only give a verbal whatever to the other. It's unfair. It's inconsistent. That will provoke children to anger. Number 15, being legalistic. This is when parents create rules and they elevate them to the same place of authority as the Bible. And many times these rules can be unreasonable. It might be a rule like this to your child. You may never, as long as you live under my roof, ever watch a movie. Just imposing legalistic kinds of things. Now, I would advocate a wise choice of movies. I'm not denying that. But you have to be careful of creating rules and elevating them to such a status over children that will provoke them unnecessarily to anger. Number 16, overprotection. It's so easy to do this. I'm very prone to this in my own life, smothering them. It's the idea of a little bird remaining in its nest and it never learns to fly kind of thing. How about number 17, not admitting when you're wrong and asking for forgiveness? You know what is really wise of parents to do when, not if, but when they sin against their children, to go to that child and to ask for forgiveness and say, little Johnny, 
daddy sinned against you when I said this or when I did this or when I got angry, when I was impatient, and I ask your forgiveness. Number 18, not making time to talk and spend time with your children. If you don't take the time to have unhurried conversations with your children, this is going to provoke them to anger. If you don't have what I call daddy dates, so vital, just take one of your children out one-on-one and have a wonderful time doing whatever they want. And in my children's case, that might involve a happy meal. But do it. Number 19, publicly correcting or publicly disciplining them. What's that going to do to the child if you publicly correct him, publicly discipline her? What would it do to you? Humiliate you. Do you want to be disciplined and corrected in front of people? I don't. Don't do that to your children. Take them into a private place. Take them away from everybody and deal with them one-on-one in a very careful way. Because if you don't, it will provoke them to anger. Number 20, another way to provoke your children to anger is always saying, No. No. Can I get a witness from the parents? Always saying no. I think parents sometimes say no to their kids so much that if people didn't know them and they were just listening, they might think their children's names are actually no. Ian, no. Sophia, no. Selah, no. Aiden, no. No, 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 no. All the time. So here's a a real good piece of advice. Try to say yes as much as possible and save the no's for the big stuff. Can I have a piece of gum? No. Can I have another drink? No. Try to say yes sometimes. And I'm I'm talking to myself because no is one of the most frequent words out of my mouth. And I need to learn to not say no all the time and say yes as much as I can. Number 21, the last one that we'll look at, withholding physical affection. So important. Dads, moms, hug your children, kiss them, love on them. If you have boys, wrestle with them. That is a boy's love language. My boys love to wrestle. And at this point, I always win because I'm much bigger than them, one day they'll be able to beat me. But showing physical affection is such a wonderful, vital thing to do. And if you withhold that, that will provoke them to anger. Well, I know this is convicting to you. It is convicting to me. But you know what? I am so glad, and I want to publicly thank God for Ephesians 6.4. I'm so glad that it's in the Bible because it protects us. It protects us from committing many sins that we might otherwise commit against God and against our children. Now, listen very quickly to the parallel verse in Colossians 3.21. In fact, just turn there. I want you to see Paul basically repeats the same thing using a little different language in Colossians 3.21. Again, a parenting manual in one verse. Fathers, again, addressing them very specifically, do not exasperate your children. Why? What happens if you exasperate them? They will lose heart. They will become discouraged. So fathers, I offer you a challenge. 
I've already begun this in my own home, and I would encourage you to do this sooner than later. Sit down with your children and ask them to tell you the ways that you provoke them to anger. That is a very big challenge. But listen to what they have to say. Don't dismiss it. And if there are examples where you are sinning in this way, confess that to the Lord, confess that to them, seek the forgiveness of God, seek the forgiveness of your children, and seek God's help to be transformed in this area. Well, we have a lot to consider here, and so far we have only had the time to look at what fathers are to avoid in their parenting. Next time, Lord willing, we will look at what fathers are to pursue in their parenting. Our Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have of calling you Father. And we thank you that you are not oppressive, that you are not severe, that you are not heavy-handed, that you are not cruel, that you are not like many earthly fathers at all. But you are tender and kind. You are patient You are long-suffering, you are gracious and compassionate, you are so generous, and and the way you father us is really a model for how we are to father our own children. Father, I pray that these things have been helpful, I pray that you would bring change where it needs to take place in our lives, and our homes, I pray that you would protect us from provoking our children to anger that by your spirit we would be the kinds of, of parents that are godly, that are wise, and that use restraint in our authority. Father, thank you for this time, and we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.